Chicken before the egg and the egg before the chicken. Lose dorsiflexion and your calf can't kick in. Walking down the street, no dorsiflexion. Your calf can't turn on. Creates a multitude of problems. In the second episode, we're going to talk about what is dorsiflexion? What needs to happen to get it? And how do you assess it? Stay tuned. Welcome to Therapists in Motion podcast, brought to you by Spooner Physical Therapy. Welcome back, listeners, to another rip roaring heel raisin episode of Therapists in Motion. Uh, as you just heard in our intro, we're talking about dorsiflexion again. And I got to be honest, guys, this is my Achilles heel. Oh my gosh, did you really just do that? <laughs> oh my gosh, are you serious right now? <laughs> We haven't been together for two months, and that's the, that's the joke you drop on us it. in person. Come on. I know it. It's horrifying. <laughs> horrifying. Um, I do have a question, though. How do you guys look at dorsiflexion when you're doing an eval with your patients? Uh, good question. Um, so when I'm looking at dorsiflexion, I'm looking at pretty much anything, actually. I'm a relatively big fan of kind of starting more specific and going a bit more general with my motions, which I think is the opposite of what a lot of people do, but that's fine. Um, I like to feel things with my hands. I like to kind of predict what I'd expect to see based on what I'm feeling where the motions are allowing it to go and then see if that translates into actual function. So I like to take a look at open chain dorsiflexion, uh, where I'm going to do some joint mobility through a lot of things we'll talk about today. And then uh, looking at it passively and really getting a good idea of end feel, both knee extended and knee flexed. And I'm looking at end feel. I mean, am I feeling anything across the anterior aspect of the joint? Any type of anterior impingement issue across talocrural joint? And not truly an impingement like a pathological or just do I feel like there's any restriction or end feel there when it, everything should be more of a posterior restriction? If it is a posterior restriction and I'm feeling that nice springy end feel, is it feel like it's coming through the middle of the Achilles? Does it feel like it's coming up higher in the calf? Does it feel like it's coming in the lateral aspect of the calf? Where, where do I feel the tissue restricting this to the greatest extent? Then I still want to look at it closed chain, typically just a knee bent, either a half kneeling or against a wall or whatever, just to see what's kind of maximally available in a more functional position for the patient. And then I'll kind of build upon that. So that's my typical mini cascade. Uh, yeah, I think... I've gone through an evolution in my practice as well. Uh, I used to start open chain on the table, knee flex, knee bent, and then go gate and then close chain. And I think now I, I do gate first and I see what the entire impact is both on the involved and the uninvolved side and see what symmetry there is through the ankle, through the knee, through the hip. <clears throat> And then um, what I typically do is I will do closed chain dorsiflexion, knee bent, knee straight, but I try and let their knee go the direction that it wants to go first. So if it dives into a little bit of, of medial dive, I let it dive and I measure that. Um, then I compare that side to side. And I've started over the last couple of weeks actually to, if they dive medially, then try and have them drive their knee over their second toe and then drive their toe, their knee laterally and compare those three numbers. And then finally, which is an interesting and sometimes tedious component is I will have them do the same thing barefoot. Doing it barefoot, then there are, their, their shoe and sock are already off. And again, I can feel that tissue tension 
you know, as they're doing that motion, not to force it, but just to feel what's happening and Mm -hmm. see what's happening. Again, compare those numbers to with their shoe on, and that could lead to some other discussions down the road. And then that's an easy transition to what Paul alluded to of doing it in an open chain where I will assess what is the true tailor cruel joint mobility as an anterior to posterior glide and where are those springy end feels and or hard end feels. And does that correlate to what I saw both in gait and in my closed chain you know, weight-bearing assessment? I'm just curious, Dan, because um, this happens. Let's say a patient shows up to the clinic in sandals. Obviously, you or let's not even say sandals. That's a that's a poor description. Let's just say uh, a pair of nice relaxed sneakers. That's definitely not their typical day to day wear, or especially not the wear they would do during some type of athletic performance or event. Do you then ask them to bring the specific shoes in and assess that as well? Like you said, I don't want to go too far down this chain, but it is really interesting to think about what are the mechanics, but then how massively it can change based on your footwear. Yeah, I think that's a great question because all too often that's what happens on on initial evaluation day, right? The, the patient may not think that they will go through any sort of dynamic movement and or exercise on day one, which I think that's part of our professional responsibility to help educate fellow therapists and anybody who are making and scheduling initial evaluations to encourage patients to bring the footwear that they participate in athletics in to that first session. So yes, I will ask them to bring that at their next session and I usually make note in my clinical assessment of that individual as a reminder to myself to check that at their next session and compare barefoot to then them being in their running shoe or their cross training shoe. Um, I usually don't do that in any sort of cleat until we've gotten further down the road, but whatever their solid ground gym slash training shoe is, um, I will compare barefoot to that and, and mm-hmm. see because that, again, not to go down that rabbit hole, but it could help me have a discussion with them and gear them to a potentially a different footwear because it restricts their motion so much that that yeah. could be the direct cause of why they're having said symptom. Yeah. I think that happens a lot. I can think of multiple occurrences of people that actually wore flip-flops to their first day and their thought was, well, we're not going to do a lot the first day and you're going to need to see my foot anyway. I literally had a guy a couple weeks ago come in in flip-flops after uh, three fractures in his foot from a motorcycle accident. So I would say for my, mine has changed through the years too. And I, first off, don't just look at this with ankle issues alone. The way that I tease that out is a lot through subjective too. And we're going to cover more of the chain biomechanics and when you would want to look at the ankle in a in a future episode. But if somebody's mentioning that they have a history of a lot of ankle sprains or issues with the foot and ankle, it's something I'm going to look at regardless of what it says in my prescription. The the way and the order that I go each time honestly is a little bit different because I follow the flow of my brain. But I would say I probably start out looking at their foot barefoot and just looking at the posture of the foot because form follows function a lot and I get a lot from that. Um, so looking at what is their toe alignment, looking at where's the mid-tarsal at, we're going to get into that today as well. And then looking at open chain, getting the infeel in open chain, and then going into closed chain specific to what are their goals. Most of the time it's walking, um, squatting, stairs, 
what are they able to get in these in these different functional positions there. But I always look at gate last, actually, because I can't see everything happen first when I look at everything at once. So I usually put pieces together of joint mobility, both at the ankle and the foot, as well as other places in the chain. And then based off of the restrictions and what I'm seeing, then look at gait and try to piece it all together. Paul, I want to go back and ask you a question about your open chain assessment and what you're thinking of doing it actively with the patient and then you passively moving that. Can you talk to our listeners about why and what your thought process is for that differentiation of active ankle dorsiflexion, open chain, knee straight, knee bent versus passive ankle joint, ankle dorsiflexion, knee bent, knee straight? Yeah, definitely. Um, so to keep things relatively simple, my thought process is passively what's available. Can they? Let's just say that the person does demonstrate some type of dorsiflexion restriction. Passively, I want to know: Do they even have the capability of moving into the appropriate position with efficient mechanics, or is there a restriction that they aren't able to get around or get through that prevents their motion? Or if they have good, efficient joint mechanics, are they just not understanding how to utilize those mechanics? Because let's just say magically, and I'm still waiting to meet this person, but. Magically, all parts of the entire chain are completely efficient and working the way that they need to work. So you theoretically have the ability to access full dorsiflexion, whatever functional activity is you're trying to go for. That doesn't guarantee that the person's going to actually actively do it correctly. So I want to see, do they have the capability of it with me helping? Do they have the capability of it even if I'm not helping just achieving it, period. And then what do they actually actively do? It helps me decipher, do I need more of a mobility focus to start, a stability focus and retraining component to start? And most often I find something I need to clean up with my hands and I know I'm going to have to retrain after that. But it just gives me a day to balance out where I think I need to go with this person to make the greatest impact and uh, effect that carries over session to session. I think you hit on something there that is important for our listeners to think about of are they using the emotion that they have available? And I think Mm -hmm. that oftentimes, again, it's dependent on the patient that sometimes I'll just do a a straight balance reach test. So a single leg stance and I'll do maybe an an anterior lower extremity reach at ground height and a posterior lower extremity reach at ground height and see what those differences are both with the shoe on and barefoot to see how they go through the recruitment strategies of feeling the ground through their foot and how do they use the transfer of energy down through their pelvis into their foot to to provide stability. I think that that's another way that we can and should be looking at quote-unquote ankle dorsiflexion even though we know that there's knee mechanics, there's hip mechanics, there's functional muscle function, there's dynamic balance because balance isn't just static, right? So those are an additional level of component that I think what you just hit to there, that you are connecting an open chain assessment to potentially a stability limitation because you see a grave difference in their active versus their passive motion and or the specificity with your hands, which we've spoken to with Greg and Ryan Johnson for the, from the Institute of Physical Art about getting that specificity with our hands to determine where the end feel does exist. 
and what type of enveal is it is a great correlation between potentially a mechanical inefficiency related to a neuromuscular recruitment issue. And just a real quick thing for those out there that are saying, I look at passive dorsiflexion and I stretch and give overpressure and I can't feel a darn thing anywhere about what is my restriction. All I'd say is going with something Dan's talked about a lot was just intention. Just think about it and feel for it. I absolutely positively guarantee you, you will work your way into being able to feel it. Um, it's not something that I just had someone tell me and I'm like, oh yeah, I can feel it coming from the you know superior lateral aspect of the, the soleus. No, I, I cannot feel that just off the bat. It's something right. I consistently thought about, put effort and energy towards because it only takes a couple of seconds while I'm doing the assessment anyway. The more often you think about it and try to work on it, the more and more frequently you'll be like, okay, I can feel it. I think I feel it coming from there. You then palpate up proximally and like, okay, yep, I feel a restriction in tissue, fascia, yep. whatever it is up top uh, that correlates exactly what I'm getting into. Yeah, I second that. Even in the Great Institute, they always talk about in transformalizing into the tissue. So I learned how to think three-dimensionally about what I'm feeling and what I'm seeing as someone's moving. And exactly what you say, Paul, it's it's as you're feeling, no matter what joint you're feeling, as I move the calcaneus into eversion, what does that look like when it happens well? And what do I feel is the difference between what I think I should feel and what is happening in there and what I'm feeling? Same thing at talocrural, same thing through the midfoot. So let's spring into that. Oh my gosh, you and puns. Have you been hanging around <laughs> Brian Schulte lately? Goodness <laughs> sake. <laughs> well, I think that so often in school we're taught, and this is no disservice to them, we're taught that ankle dorsiflexion is basically talocrural joint mobility. Yep. And basically a posterior glide, yep. even though they teach you that it's not just like a simple hinge joint or other, but it's still just a posterior glide. So what I want to get into is, and Jen's question is perfect, it's not just what's happening at the midfoot or the midtarsal joint, but what else is happening in the mechanics of the foot that by taking somebody's shoe off, you will start to have the ability to assess different aspects of their foot to determine do they have the motion available and do they have the stability available in these other key components to contribute to global ankle dorsiflexion? I will start out by, you know, if if you break it down and you're just looking at walking, we'll look at two different phases of walking where you go front foot and you go back foot of walking. Um, In the front foot, you're going to need calcaneal eversion. So you need the calcaneus to be able to actually rotate out or roll away from midline. And that allows for the talus to kind of dive down and in, which is going to produce what you see in what we call as pronation in the mid-tarsal joint. So that is the first and foremost thing that I want to be able to see that the foot can do because it's actually the ignition, the turn on for all of the eccentric loading through the plantar fascia and the calf and the posterior tib and all of those muscles up and in through the chain. And we'll get to that on the next episode again as well. But I want to see that that's happening. And again, like he said, is the joint able are those joints able to go into those motions are they able to splay out in addition to can the person control those motions that are happening so i think that you've hit something there that's huge oftentimes we are looking solely at overpronation right (laughs) and (laughs) cheapers you and your puns today jen uh we're looking solely at pronation 
but there's multiple components that go into pronation. And you may see somebody who quote unquote over pronates, or if I, you know, reference Dr. J.B. Barr from Creighton, uh, a dirty over pronator, that <laughs> it, it may, they may be over pronating due to a mechanical inefficiency, most likely in their rear foot. You could see a mechanical inefficiency in their first ray to have that dirty overpronation, but my hunch would be it is a rear foot subtalar joint restriction that is leading to the excessive overpronation. And I also want to reference back to Greg and Ryan Johnson and in Institute of Physical Art and Brett Yamascha from Dynamic Foot Ankle Course that when you put most people in a subtalar neutral position, you will see the vast majority of those individuals go into a supinated midfoot position. Yep. So that is a key piece of information for us to think about. We were all taught in PT school how to assess subtalar joint neutral, right? And again, if you think back to all of your classmates, they were most likely even in a non-weight-bearing or a weight-bearing position in midfoot supination, but yet they are an extremely overpronated individual during that front foot strike initial contact to mid stance phase of gait. Mm-hmm. But yet we do things that, oh, you have, an, you have posterior tib weakness. Mm, do you really have posterior tib weakness? No, let's think about the position of subtalar joint neutral and you see a pronated foot position. Therefore, we should ta- attack the subtalar joint and it is potentially most likely not efficient calcaneal eversion. And just a quick plug on top of that, because Dan, I love what you're saying, especially looking at that fore and that rear foot. Uh, but I also want to make sure people don't jump to the conclusion that the midfoot is hypermobile simply because you see a pronated or, more importantly, a navicular drop. And when you go back to things we're taught as a foundation, oftentimes, oh, do you have a navicular drop? Oh, the navicular drops a bunch. Yep, that's an overpronated foot. Their navicular might be so mobile that the rest of the midfoot saying, holy crud. I can't move. I cannot do this cuneiform splay that I need to provide because there's so much motion already. Something has to remain stable. And I've seen people that miss a need for midfoot mobility because they see a singular bone in the midfoot have excessive motion. So don't skip by it because to tie this back into dorsiflexion again, dorsiflexion is not purely a talocrural joint motion. To get full, appropriate, maximal, especially a closed chain dorsiflexion, Midfoot motion is required. Is it the prime driver of dorsiflexion? No. No, it is not. Taylor Crow joint remains that. But full efficient mobility and full maximal potential mobility involves appropriate midfoot motion across the entire joint. So important things you guys are all talking about here. So I want to ask then a question Jen kind of alluded to in the beginning that there's two components, right? There's two phases of walking when your foot is in front and then when your, your foot is in behind and in getting ready for push-off phase. So Paul, are you looking at midfoot mobility more specifically in that first initial contact to mid-stance or mid-stance to terminal stance just prior to push-off for when you're really seeing do they have efficient for, for simplistic terms, pronation and then motion back towards supination or resupination. Um, yeah, I mean, so I probably keep it simple to start and I'll just do like a, a squat type of motion and just see what happens. Can they even go through a pronation, supination in a relatively static foot position just to make my life easier? Then I definitely want to go back, look through gate and see, do they have the ability to 
supronate and resupronate. And I am going to look typically more towards that back end of gate in particular, because just as you, you pretty much gave me the answer as you said it, because I want to know, do they have the ability to pronate and resupinate? And that requires that back foot of gate to see, are they going through those appropriate motions appropriately? Right. So I think when we were doing our, our sports medicine class this spring, one of the components that we realized we didn't teach very well was looking at that mid-fit mobility both in a relative plantar flexed moving towards dorsiflexion and then dorsiflexion moving towards end range dorsiflexion yeah. and really assessing that mid-foot mobility because oftentimes you'll see people that can't get out of that re that can't get out of that pronated position. They can't move towards supination or resupination. And therefore, then that leads to a lot of other issues. All right. So anything to add, Jen, on midfoot before I ask another question? I just want to put one quick plug in. This is a big pet peeve of mine. If you are doing this in open chain, please be specific to what you want to see for the dorsiflexion or plantar flexion of the foot. I see so often people assess midfoot in a like relaxed, which is typically a relatively plantar flexed foot position, which is perfectly fine to do. We want to look at things in open pack positions, see what motion is available. But again, when it comes into looking at what does it mean functionally, make sure you put the foot passively into the position it needs to move there in and see what mechanics happen. Then you can load them up in a weight bearing position to see. So it is important to make sure be specific about foot position in areas other than what you're assessing to mm -hmm. see how it happens because mechanics do change based on the degree of dorsiflexion or lack thereof. Beautifully said, sir. No, I just – I had a question. When – when should you see the resupination? When do you like to see it? And how do you assess it? It's a good question. I think I want to see resupination as they start to put load through their first ray and get distal aspect of first ray plantar flexion. So you can get first MTP joint extension. And what you would see from the top down is you would see femoral external rotation tibial external rotation and then by them keeping their first ray on the ground or first mtp joint on the ground you will see that midfoot start to go through a resupinated position um, so if you think about assessing this open chain i actually did this yesterday with the patient you can keep their first the distal aspect of their first metatarsal in plantar flexion you know potentially on your thigh and then you can externally rotate their tibia with your with your more superior or proximal hand and watch to see what happens in that midfoot. Does that mid-tarsal joint start to resupinate and does that calcaneus follow in an invers inversion moment or, or, or drive not to an inverted position? You will see the the splay that Paul briefly mentioned from the first phase of of walking that mid that midfoot splay start to come back together and almost um, rejoin each other for lack of a better word from a simplistic standpoint uh, to assist with providing a stable rigid midfoot to push off. And Paul had talked about that in the last episode when he talked about. As the body weight comes forward to the front of the foot, the importance of the mechanics at that point, you're going to get a lot of, we can get a lot into functional muscle function of what happens at that point. But as your body is coming over that fixed foot, 
if you're moving efficiently, you should be able to have the mechanics that Dan was just talking about where you're seeing everything kind of load itself up so that the foot can create this driver, this propulsion, this rigid lever to push off from. And a lot of times people don't have the ability to keep their big toe down as they go into that specific phase of gait. So just a quick question, because Dan, you put a lot of good mechanics out there quickly. So I want people to hear it again from either of you. So let's just say we're doing a half kneeling assessment of closed chain dorsiflexion. Okay, okay. so we've got that, that foot that you're assessing is the front foot. Obviously, you're kneeling on the other foot. Talk me through what you're seeing, talocruel, sub, um, subtalar joint, the, the tibia, the fib, and the midfoot. It's kind of that component. I know it's a lot. I know. <laughs> But you, you literally stated all of those, Dan. Yeah. So I just want people to kind of hear in a sequential order, kind of starting at tail accrual and branching it out from there. Just what are the things you're kind of looking at? What are you seeing as a mo- motion occurring? All right. So that's a great question. So in half kneeling, let's imagine that their left foot is forward. As they drive their knee forward, what I want to see happen at the calcaneus, that the calcaneus goes into E version, the talus goes down and in with the tibia following into an internally rotated position. Okay, or an internal rotation motion, excuse me. So you should be seeing everything diving into Diving in. So, right, the midfoot is going to fall into a, for lack of a better word, a pronated position, and you will roll onto your great toe. Yep. Right? Okay. As they then come back out of that, it's going to be a little different because you won't have the full top-down drive of, of being in the back leg of gait where you're getting – the femur rotating into external rotation, the tibia rotating into external rotation, the talus coming up and out, the calcaneus moving into and towards an inverted position, the midfoot moving into a resupination position, reforming an arch while the, the first MTP distally plantar flex so the great toe can go through dorsiflexion um, and then the last component, and I know this is something that you're really big on, is what is happening at the distal tib-fib joint. And what we know from kind of ankle instability studies, uh, a taping study that was done in the NBA, that that distal-fib mechanics on somebody with chronic ankle instability is huge. Uh, shout out to Dr. Terry Grindstaff, who's committed a lot of his professional work to studying chronic ankle instability. They've done some Y-balance um, studies with sham versus real tape jobs and, and measured is there a difference in that that actually study is published so that is findable and we're going to try and link that as a description in the pod for easy finding of references and so that fibular mechanic as you go into the second phase of gait just prior to heel off that distal fibula has to move posterior and superior to get out of the way so that the talus can slide up and out and the calcaneus to go into that towards that inversion moment. If that distal fibula does not slide up and out, that talus can't come up and out and then therefore the calcaneus cannot come up and out and then they may stay in a a, a floppy mid-tarsal joint component and now all of a sudden they start to have a bunion formation or mm-hmm. they start to have posterior tibial tendonitis or they start to have plantar fascial pain and all of it can come back to, wait, you've had a history of 16 ankle sprains? Huh. My hunch is, is your distal lateral fib does not do what it's supposed to do. Yep. I've actually even found, especially with endurance runners, so 
those running at least a marathon, if not much more, particularly those running ultras, um, even without significant ankle and uh, inversion sprain histories, just the amount of, I don't know if it's trauma or whatever the rationale is, a lot of them have really dysfunctional fibs. Yeah. Um, and I have found that often getting that, as Dan said, that posterior and superior glide, especially adding into the superior glide component that is often missed, I've had a lot of people have much improved foot mechanics and resolution of plantar fascial pain and a lot of base of the fifth pain. Um, I've had a mm-hmm. lot of people that have that just they stay supinated, they don't get the pronation, and they've done therapy, and we they beat up midfoot and everything, nothing quite gets there, and I clean up fib, and suddenly they're able to actually distribute weight the way they need to get across the great toe, etc. So yep. yeah, thank you, Dan, for bringing it up. It's a huge piece of the equation. So did I answer your mechanical <laughs> question very quickly? You covered it very nicely. <laughs> yeah. It was good. Because like you said, you, you guys put a lot of stuff out there. I just want people to yep. hear it again in kind of a good order. So that that's awesome. Yeah. And shout out to common fibular nerve with those same fibular mobs because people with like shin splints and things like that or any pain down that distribution really, really benefit from those fibular mobs. Clinical nugget, too, and Dan had talked about this when he brought up bunionectomies and, and things of that nature of the first array. If you have somebody that you know you want to work on great toe extension and you're doing that in an open chain position, please, please, please traction that joint and plantar flex that first MTP because in function, that is what's going to happen to naturally traction that joint and give it the room for great toe extension. If you just crank on great toe extension without moving the MTP, you're just going to cram that superior, uh, yeah, superior aspect of the joint, and that could create more issues and more pain. Huge clinical nugget there. I, I get so much more success working through first MTP than I do actually working through anything more distal. So thank you, Jen. That's mm-hmm. big. So as you guys are mentioning, especially that's a it's a great tie-in. You know, let's just say we again have the person with really efficient midfoot and rear foot. If we're looking at a a runner or even a walker, anyone who's moving, we know obviously if you're lacking great toe extension, it doesn't matter how well your foot can dorsiflex. You'll never get into that position of optimal dorsiflexion. So we know great toe extension is required to maximize dorsiflexion. What else are you guys looking at to make sure we can achieve appropriate full dorsiflexion, assuming it's available at the joint? Ooh, that's a good question. Yep. Uh, so I'll, I'll go back to making sure that there's adequate myofascial soft tissue mobility, especially yeah. through that posterior capsule and do an AP of that talus on the tibia. Mm-hmm. And you can do that in a open packed position. You can do that in a closed packed position, but non-loaded, right? And you can do that in a weight-bearing or partial weight-bearing position. Now, I think of analyzing that in in kind of four quadrants. So I want to go posterior lateral, posterior, posterior medial. Actually, it's more than four quadrants. I want to look at the talus's ability to go medial and laterally. You have more than four quadrants. Oh, good point. (laughs) (laughs) Touche. And then I'll – sometimes I will – do it in prone and look at anterior medial anterior lateral mobility like Paul alluded to sometimes you will see anterior soft tissue impingement or or joint capsule impingement that that cannot be understated that you actually may have to mobilize that individual anteriorly on that talus as opposed to posteriorly on that talus and then the last thing I'll look at is I will fixate their talus and drive their tibia anterior over the fixed talus because if we think about the right before, you know, mid stance to push off, it's really that tibia driving over a fixed talus 
that is could lead to decreased efficiency. And then that's where I'll get into soleus mobility, gastric mobility, potential hamstring mobility, neuromobility, yep. Achilles sheath mobility, which is a huge component. Those would probably be the, as I think through my list of quote unquote probable suspects that that's what I would hit. Did I, mm-hmm. anything else that you guys Oh, you did a at? great job. Yeah. Um, I, I would say the only thing I would add, and you really kind of talked about it, but just to give a little more clarity from where my brain is going, um, the ability for the body to come over the foot. If I just think about three-dimensionally what needs to happen at the foot to allow that to that to happen, I need the ability for the midfoot to move. It needs to move into pronation, and it needs to come back out of pronation into supination. People that cannot move into pronation, people that are stuck in supination – they still get that a lot of that force stuck back into the Achilles and they can't move their body forward over that foot. And oftentimes we talk about overpronators or people that pronate too much, but the same happens on the opposite end of the spectrum. And you're going to see those changes and those compensations all the way up the chain into the knee, into the hip, into the pelvis, into the back. And we're going to get into that in our next episode, I believe. Yeah. I mean, just kind of give a little bit of a, 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 trend towards that direction for the next episode too because it is important as we're talking about all the pieces of dorsiflexion like jen said if you can't get over on top of your foot you can't achieve the appropriate dorsiflexion what does that also require well hip extension if you can't get your hip into an extended position you're either going to have to spin out or heel off more quickly than you would want to so again you might have amazing mechanics for everything that we've been talking about today if your hip can't get into extended position you can't utilize them which is going to then go into pelvic motion, sacral motion. I mean, a hip IR, ER plays a role. So don't forget to looking up. But again, just something as simple as looking at hip extension, I feel like is often missed with an ankle foot patient. And you have this person that's super stiff because they probably haven't had motion in a long time. You're doing all this work and you're not getting carryover. And then you find four or five sessions later, well, their hip's never extending. So every step they're taking, they're still not taking advantage of what you've been giving them. So they're not using this new range. Right. And therefore, you're not making the gains you would expect because something as simple as, oh, crud, I need to make sure I look up the chain as well, isn't being assessed appropriately. So, yeah, I love it. Awesome, awesome information. Yep. So, as I said, some things to look forward to in the next session where we'll talk a little bit more about the chain. Um, as particularly look at how we can actually be treating these dysfunctions that were discussed today. What are some exercises? What are some manual techniques? Uh, and then what are the muscle firing patterns we're looking for? So look for that next time. As always, if you have any thoughts, questions, comments, concerns, please reach out to us at therapistinmotion at spoonerpt.com. Otherwise, thank you all for listening and have a great day.